Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Criterion Cast. It has been a while, uh, so much so that your host here, currently speaking, forgot some of the uh, usual procedures. But it's been uh, been a long time trying to get everyone together and synchronize our schedules and uh, avoid uh, calamitous uh, weather events in one uh, in one situation. Uh, but we are back here with episode 194 talking about uh, Ingmar Bergman's persona. We hope to have a few episodes about Ingmar Bergman's films out before year's end. Uh, but we figured we'd start with uh, one of one of his biggest, perhaps his biggest, some might say. Uh, here to talk about that film with me and its relative uh, importance in Bergman's filmography and the history of cinema and really of art itself are uh, David Blakesley. David, how's it going? I'm doing great, Scott. Happy to be talking with you again. And Trevor Barrett. Trevor, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. This is uh, something we've been building up to for a while. <laughs> Indeed. And I'm excited. As am I. And, and a little intimidated, I'm not, not going to lie. It's been nice kind of uh, with our delays. We've been at, I've been able to watch the movie a few more times, add a few more notes than I probably would have if we got to it when we planned to initially. Um, so I feel pretty well prepared. But like I said, it's a, it's a big movie. It's uh, a little intimidating, but I trust we'll have a good discussion about it i'm looking forward to getting into uh but first we give criterion as always the first word uh from their own description uh which goes by the mid-60s ingmar bergman had already conjured many of cinema's most unforgettable images but with the radical persona the supreme artist attained new levels of visual poetry in the first of a series of legendary performances for bergman liv ullman plays a stage actor who is inexplicably gone mute an equally mesmerizing B.B. Anderson is the garrulous young nurse caring for her in a remote island cottage. While isolated together there, the women perform a mysterious spiritual and emotional transference that would prove to be one of cinema's most influential creations. Acted with astonishing nuance and a shot in a stark contrast and soft light by the great Sven Nykvist, Persona is a penetrating dreamlike work of profound psychological depth. A well-stated criterion. The first time I saw this uh, was back in college, probably 12, 13 years ago. Uh, I was in the midst of my initial Bergman binge as I was trying to get through as many of his films as possible, having started with him that previous summer. Uh, I was watching this in my college apartment on a 19-inch TV on the old MGM DVD. Uh, And still, even with, uh, I'm sure, my roommates making all kinds of noises and a less-than-ideal presentation, I remember like physically shaking at the end of this film, just so like uh, upset in a good way and just so affected by the drama that had unfolded. Um, and it has really only gotten more interesting as the years have gone. It's one of those rare films that I feel I've never quite gotten a total handle on, including here while we're talking about it. And I think that's important to note up front that whatever we end up saying here is hardly the final word from this film. Uh, there's so much nuance and so much into it and whatever reading you could draw from it uh, you'll never truly be able to summarize it and I know like I said even this this past few months going back into the film and reading about it uncovered I feel like new things each time and so the idea that one can present a, a formal idea of what the film is seems impossible and indeed Bergman kind of talked about that in interviews uh, I found a quote uh, from him being interviewed by John Simon uh And Simon tries to kind of summarize the film for Bergman and for his readers. He says, "Uh, Would you say that Persona is really about how a person who feels empty, depleted, and sick gets back into life again by using another person? 
To which Bergman replied, I don't want to say anything about that. Persona is a tension, a situation, something that has happened in the past, and beyond that, I don't know. Uh, the film was kind of famously created in the midst of an extended hospital stay that Bergman was in, following the collapse of one production, uh, and he kind of wrote it in a fever pitch and very quickly. It was revised a few times after that, most notably uh, with B.B. Anderson's influence, but so much of the film from the production and stuff I read, there you know, they were just kind of going with an instinct and an idea and not trying to create a defined end product until they arrived there. Um, and I think that's really reflected in a very productive way. And that's a lot of what comes about with the avant-garde influence and just so much of the choices that seem so unusual and now which have been parodied so often, which at the time were so daring and so uh, unique, just came about because they were in a unique position of Bergman's uh, professional background and his stature in the industry that he could kind of create this strange film that he openly admits, you know, might have ruined him. And but at the same time, due to its success, kind of saved him. And he kind of owes the rest of his career to it. Um, I'm sure we're all big fans. Usually this is the part where I kind of go around and get everyone's general thoughts. But it's safe to assume that we're all kind of on board with this film. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, with that, I will get into uh, some initial topics. And if you guys want to give your impressions when I throw to you, uh, feel free to take, of course, the conversation wherever you so choose, uh, because that's this kind of film. Um, as with a lot of things to do with Bergman, I like to emphasize the importance of the dramatic structure of the film, uh, because he is so uh, heralded and kind of well known for his thematic depth, and his emotional depth and kind of these, like I said, avant-garde choices and all these kind of like formal, somewhat academic concerns. But to me, what strikes me about Persona time and time again is just how well-formed it is as drama. Uh, it's, it could almost work as a stage play. And indeed, I did see a, an opera adapted from it, which was very interesting and which I'll explain more as we get on. Uh, but just the simple dramatic conflict of a woman who will not speak and a woman who can't stop talking and how the latter comes to resent the former and then a little bit the former the latter and how they seem to kind of merge personalities but never quite. At every turn, Bergman keeps instituting a dramatic conflict, you know, whether it's the letter that uh, Alma discovers or uh, the kind of confrontation, the way they escalates into violence eventually. Um, he never forgets to keep it kind of rooted in drama. Is this something you guys have noticed um or do you just get washed in the uh dreamlike nature of it all well i, I guess I'll, I'll step into it here uh yeah I, he, he it seems like he sort of conceived this this exploration of of uh a friendship between two women and i i think one of the sort of seeds that this grew out of was an encounter where he sort of at random met up with B.B. Anderson on a street, uh, whether it's in Stockholm or somewhere in Sweden, and, and Liv Ullman happened to be with her, and they had already become pretty close friends, and Bergman had had a prior relationship with B.B. Anderson. It seemed like it broke up somewhat amicably. You know, they continued to work together, and no hard feelings, but and he was probably already, <laughs> or instantly perhaps drawn, uh, intrigued with Liv Ullman, uh, but yeah, I think BB says somewhere that you know he sort of wanted to get inside their friendship and and kind of 
explore that territory. And I think he, he just kind of took that dynamic and, and expanded it out. And, you know, there, I, you know, I maybe a, a quick opening summary of my take is that there's, there's just so many brilliant ideas and, and interesting, fascinating concepts that he kind of grabbed a hold on, whether it's myth, the mythology, the whole Electra thing, the, the psychology, uh, the, kind of this, this territory of an intimate uh, relationship between two women uh, what's at the heart of it what what fuels it what drives it along especially when it's kind of got this extremely imbalanced structure like you said of the woman who will not talk and the other woman who is drawn into that silence to just lay her heart bare and and, and uh, disclose you know candid intimate even even potentially humiliating things because this this mute partner in conversation uh, turns out to be this empathic listener, and yet is that a sincere thing or is this an actorly technique <laughs> that 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 uh, Elizabeth's using to you know draw material, not necessarily for artistic representation, but part of just her own exploration of of life and what it means to be human and alive, and and in this in this case a, a woman, you know, so just. All kinds of you know fascinating room for speculation. It's it's not a blank canvas upon which we can project our own ideas. It's a very fertile garden that we can you know play around in and and see new ideas and insights and applications coming at it uh, at us with with each viewing. And I, I love the conciseness of the film as well. It's it's under an hour and a half, and yet it's absolutely loaded. And even some of that hour and a half is you know framing devices and little interludes that really aren't central to the narrative but just create this fascinating structure in which everything happens yeah this is a film that is overloaded not and in a good way with sensation and images but the thing that's always strange to me is I can sit there and watch it and get so many feelings in my in my heart that when I try to discuss them or write about them, I can't quite put them into words. It's it's a very strange sensation to to feel so overwhelmed with emotion and overwhelmed with um, connections, and then realize. Bergman's working on my mind in a kind of a, a strange subconscious way that I can't quite articulate all the time. Now, I, I have a lot of ideas that I've, I've, I think I've learned to articulate some of them over the years since I first watched this movie, but I still, when I sat down to watch it again, um, was, was surprised at how many feelings came to my mind that I was like, man, is that the first time I've ever noticed that while watching this movie? Mm -hmm. Or maybe I've noticed it before, but it just kind of got washed back down somehow and other things uh, rose into its place. Um, It's, it's a marvel. And I'm kind of sad. I was hoping tonight that uh, Scott, that you and David might give the definitive word on it. Um, (laughs) You say there at the beginning in a kind of a display that you're not going to. (laughs) Uh, But I I do love it. And I actually think that in a way, um, and maybe this is just an excuse on my part, but in a way, I think that part of the film is about being on the cusp of understanding something and then falling off the cliff. And I, th- I think that that's in here about about kind of losing one's grip on 
what you think you know and what you think is going on. And I, I think that's maybe not deliberate even. Bergman just had that skill of of putting some things that maybe you can't articulate in words, and he could articulate them beautifully in, in moving imagery. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Um, the idea of being on the cusp of something, because even the characters themselves, I've there was a while where I felt like uh, Alma kind of ends the film a bit resolutely where she kind of gains a bit of an upper hand uh, against Elizabeth finally and learns that she can walk away from the situation. And in a way that's, that is kind of part of what Bergman's teasing out, but one also senses that there's still some lingering effects of their summer together will always be with her. And that's kind of, it's in many ways kind of about that kind of intense relationship, whether it be a, romantic or sexual relationship or immediately a platonic relationship um just any kind of encounter with another person where you do gain a sense of intimacy um i just think of that shot where she's looking herself in the mirror and kind of runs her hands through her hair kind of remembering what was really the most powerful connection between the two of them which might not even happen for that matter but which to her is very real and kind of represents uh, a moment in which they felt connected and in many ways the film is kind of a memory of that idea and that sensation uh it made me it makes me think about so many relationships i've had of you know where you really admire somebody and really try to get close to them but you never really feel like you get to know them in part because your own admiration seems to kind of get in the way yeah and it's the effect that they have on on you In, in this case alma's um her, her willingness to open up and, and make those disclosures and feel so free and you know she she lets herself go in a way that yeah she just had never before except maybe in that moment of the you know, the sexual encounter on the beach another time of release and abandon which you know she she remembered but she kind of tucked away um this here this this encounter that she has with elizabeth this assignment that she accepts even though she almost knows going in she's overmatched uh, but she she goes for it anyway uh it, it's not so much the connection that the two women mutually feel for each other they they each had an effect on themselves and their experience of themselves is kind of what's opened up and transformed uh when that encounter has kind of come to its end and they've moved on So Trevor, if you if you do want to see a definitive interpretation of the film, I will recommend <laughs> my blog entry from Criterion Reflections. <laughs> um, that that is where I definitely go out on a spe- speculative limb and say this is what it means. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll, I maybe I know I'll... I've read it. I I yeah. have read your post before, but right sure. now, and I even well. remember you kind of. Um, having that kind of, uh, oh, I don't know what you, how you want, a quixotic uh, approach to your essay. <laughs> Here goes, well, everybody. It, <laughs> it was a long one. It's one of the longer essays I've written. And, and the, the, you know, it's 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 a bit of a lark. I don't think I, I, I'm totally facetious in it. But, you know, it's one of those, let's take a stab at it and see if I can apply an interpretive key over it. Basically, the idea is that the, the boy that we meet at the beginning is, is young Ingvar Bergman, and he's projecting his personality into these two women, uh, Elizabeth representing the artistic, creative, public side of himself, uh, the, the woman who's famous and creates art and, and presents a message to the world, 
and then there's Alma, the more domestic side of Bergman with his private relationships and his guilt and his, you know, uh, ordinary business of being a human in relationship with, with other people in his life and, and the mixed feelings and the tensions that exist between the public and the private persona. Uh, and, and so, you know, I'll, I'll let readers, if they really want to follow that train of thought, uh, you know, get into the essay and read it out. But, you know, it, it, it kind of goes back and forth. And I suppose it's as good of a take as anybody's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- this is a film that is, that is uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a touchstone for so many critics of, of, of the most accomplished caliber to just, you know, ordinary blokes like us who like to, you know, kind of ponder the film, you know, toss a few ideas around and then finally work up the nerve to put something out there whether it's here on a podcast in a written form and you know uh, I could probably write another essay about it and come to opposite conclusions just because again what what what's what tangents do you want to follow what what line of 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 reason or logic whether that's you know linear or dream logic do you want to pursue uh, to arrive at some kind of conclusion uh, it's it's all there and, and it's it, it can be the cinematography it can be the music it can be the the sound effects it can be those little random seemingly random drop-ins uh, those those little you know enigmatic clips from you know cinema past and present news news broadcasts and uh, you know reports of military activity uh, that were happening at the time in Vietnam and there's just it, it's it, it, Bergman's willingness to just throw the whole kitchen sink in there. The other the other kind of uh, theme that I struck in that essay was the proximity to the Beatles Revolver album, which was another kind of showcase of of artists at the peak of their powers, just you know exploring new territory, combining elements in ways that hadn't really been experienced or seen before, uh, and and. It's it's both playful and and emotively effective, and masterful, um, without you know clobbering you over the head with some you know self conscious importance of of uh, you know a, a didactic type of message that it's trying to you know convey to uh, viewers or listeners of its era. Well, and and I so I, I do remember your your essay now as as you're uh, reminding me of it. And it's interesting because when I wrote about the film, I do take a different tact entirely, almost preferring not to read Alma and Elizabeth as same people or similar people. Um, And I I was looking just in preparation for this episode um, over some of the things that Peter Cowie has said about the film um, and basically saying anything that you say about Persona, there's the opposite there as well. Like you can, mm-hmm. someone can counter, can contradict it and beautifully, and this isn't Peter Cowie and maybe he said this, but you know, beautifully it's a film that's all the stronger for it and not one that just falls apart because it's pointless. You know, my own preferred take on the film, or at least a reading that I think is very rich is that kind of psychological cannibalism that, that happens when you put two people together um, who have some kind of not necessarily sexual attraction, but some kind of thing drawing them together, um, have to spend time together. 
and just the sense of the erosion of your own personality as 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 they take it over or and as you you know return the favor a little bit and how fascinating that is portrayed in the film but my reading isn't is not satisfactory because it doesn't really help with some of the early imagery <laughs> you know of the little boy um who who returns to us from Bergman's silence and and has some, even some um some similar gestures there uh, to the to silence and uh, uh, the film from a few years earlier and you know it, I, I have no place for that in my reading of it and yours does and I think that's that's uh, a wonderful thing that this film offers is is tangents and parallels that seem to strengthen each other even as they kind of tear down each other yeah I mean that's just a mark of the quality of the writing and the quality of the filmmaking that there can be so many warring impulses that still it still feels of a piece you know these aren't things that detract from it it's not like with so many other films where all these disparate elements seem to work against each other and it's, it feels like the film is confused here the film feels very cohesive and of a unit even if like you and Peter Cowley noted you can't completely uh summarize it uh David you touched on one thing I definitely wanted to get to which is Bergman's habit of expressing himself through female characters uh you know every now and again I think he hits on uh, a male character in his movies that can express some part of him that's a little bit more vulnerable but for the most part uh he tends to show that side of himself through women and when he's able to give himself a female protagonist the men often come across as very uh out of touch and very kind of goofy almost and very single-minded whereas the women come across as these incredibly emotionally rich characters and uh, people with these vast inner lives that are only partially expressed through the drama and through the acting. Uh, and here, even though, the, you know, B.B. Anderson especially is really just leaving it all out to bear, there's still so much of Alma that you can't completely summarize. Uh, but I think one of the film's great strengths is that he, Bergman felt the comfort to just completely isolate these people, not only in the sense of them sending them off uh, to cottage together, but also just dramatically, there's barely any other characters. You know, there's a doctor early on uh, that kind of sets up the whole ordeal. And I think it's a very important character for Alma to be reflected against. It's kind of a future she could be having if she wasn't destined to get married and have kids and kind of have this very set life before. Her. And then of course, uh, Gunnar Brunstrand's brief cameo is uh, Mr. Vogler, Elizabeth's husband, um, who again may or may not exist in the context of the film, uh, but would, who expresses a kind of uh, opposition, I suppose, to Alma and to Elizabeth. Uh, but for the most part, it's just really the two women by themselves and these sides of Bergman. I don't even want to say two sides because I think the two women uh, represent so much more than just uh, one or two uh, perspectives. I think they represent whole worlds unto themselves that are roiling within Bergman, in which find a very productive outlet in opposition to one another. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's, he's resolutely shifted the focus to the women only, I guess the women, the two women in, in the silence are very much so the, the center of the film, but really, uh, or even earlier, even in some of the, the very female focused roles and dramas, a lot of the, the power of those films is the women effect upon the men, <laughs> the protagonists, you know, right. the male protagonists. Here, he's really m marginalizing the men in in a way that isn't you know dismissive, but 
he's really wanting to get into this particular relationship between two women, as you say, who represent two worlds, two ways of life, two manners of or modes of perception and, and experiencing life and, and really exploring that. And I think uh, his, his collaboration with B.B. Anderson and allowing her to take some of his script and, and really make it an authentic woman's expression is also a smart choice on his part. And, um, you know, and, and I think it, it conveys his respect for you know, the artistic contributions of his female actors. And of course he went on to, you know, do incredible work building on this foundation, but this really does feel like such a, a mountain peak of his career and, and did launch him into, you know, kind of the whole, second or maybe third phase of of uh of his incredible career yeah i think the way the women are posited against men is interesting because they're not completely apart from men in this film um so much of the film is kind of concerned with ideas of motherhood of the expectation that women will become mothers um kind of the fear that must overtake women and i mean i feel bad not having a woman here to represent this perspective on the podcast mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but you one gets a sense of that bb Anderson's character alma expects to become a mother but is somewhat afraid of that and afraid of the way it will uh restrict her and pigeonhole her in this very definitive life and she sees i think to a certain extent in elizabeth that exactly that expression of that fear what happens when a woman has a child and maybe isn't cut out for motherhood and maybe in some ways rejects that and kind of admires her for that, but also sees how isolated she's become as a result of that. Uh, and I, as much as that, this relationship to motherhood and to women's roles in general could mark the film in a modern sense as kind of hashtag problematic. I don't think it's so far apart from what Bergman has been expressing, even through the men, um, in his previous films who are just as kind of uh, harnessed to the women in their lives. I mean, even in The Seventh Seal, uh, Antonius Block is literally journeying home to be with his wife. You know, that's kind of the one character I can think of who's kind of most apart and most on his own and most going through his own existential angst. But he's still fundamentally uh, tied to his, his role as a husband and to a certain uh, loving uh, beacon, I suppose. Um, and I, you go through the rest of the filmography, you know, through a glass darkly is very much about these men who are attached to this woman and who can't uh, extract themselves from that. Uh, even the silence, which you noted, uh, centers around a young boy who very much is kind of figuring out his place in his mother's uh, life and the extent to which that's kind of slipping away. Uh, so I think this tie between men and women is kind of inevitable and, Bergman's work and not something in which he would shy away or let alone reject, especially in a portrait of two women. And it's, it is worth noting, of course, it's still the late 1960s. And though it was a revolutionary time the world over for women, uh, there's still so much inherited cultural kind of baggage that came along with that. And even women who recognize that they're at a point of departure culturally. And I think Alma, to a certain extent, does the way she talks about the sexual encounter on the beach and the way she kind of muses that she could you know maybe not get married not have kids but she still feels kind of tied to this path 
Yeah, well, even if you want to put it in a, sort of a historic context, I mean, this film was made in in '65, you know, so uh, there was still a lot of waking up <laughs> going on culturally, and Bergman feels very much ahead of his time in this film, and and I think it is still, it is it is really timeless in that regard, you know, it, it's it hasn't really aged. It it, it is, it seems a, a generation or so uh, of a, a bit of a forerunner of of so many other things in terms of. Uh, women characters and and the fact that they're they're really kind of left on their own to pretty much resolve th- these 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 concerns that are that are you know weighing upon them well one question i have then we, we've kind of talked touched on the Gunnar bjornstrand's character and david you talked about the little boy at the beginning Mm-hmm. Um, as being a Bergman uh, kind of stand. And I, I think that's a, a, a brilliant insight that I had never had until I read your essay. And I now can't really watch the film without thinking that that's spot on, which well, is totally and, fine. Yeah. But, and just the way that he's framed, you know, the, the kid is kind of waving his hand, looking into the camera. Then you get the famous rear shot and you see what he's touching. And, and there's a there's a connection towards something that's out there, something that I would interpret as as his future or sort of his, his alternate life. But go ahead, finish well, up. Yeah, I would say there's definitely a kind of a, a birth and a coming of age in that opening montage with this little boy who at first looks like he's dead. We, we see his body lying on a gurney or a bed, you know, but looks like a gurney after we've seen some other dead people um, on their own gurneys who are old and, you know, have sunken features and all. And then he wakes up and starts to read and, you know, all of, all of the images that have come before, maybe that can be part of it. I, I, and I'm curious now because, again, your, your reading of it is so just hard to, to, to overlook. What are other interpretations of this boy if not that? I, I have heard that, well, maybe he's, you know, the boy who never was, you know, the aborted child. And that's never been a satisfactory interpretation of that opening montage and and um and of the boy and so i i'm I'm kind of asking each of you if you've ever read any other thing that's quite as satisfactory uh as this is a young bergman or a young artist or young a young human being who's starting to get to know the world through the, the tactile touch and image um, I don't know if it's as satisfactory as uh, David's reading, which I do find very provocative, but I think the common feeling is that he's meant in some way to be uh, Elizabeth's son. Uh, the way uh, Alma describes him later in the film is kind of this ungainly body and thick lips. And it, the description seems to kind of match and always has felt like that to me. Uh, you know, I don't think the kid is literally being kept in this room with one sheet or whatever in this like cot bed, but I think he's somewhat an expression of uh, how far apart Elizabeth feels from her son and how far apart he must feel. And it's kind of the other side that is never quite shown of Elizabeth's home life and the way that the her family and her son especially feel apart from her and the him kind of touching the faces on uh, apart from him, kind of represent the distance he feels. I, I think, anyway. Do we want to pick apart that opening montage? I mean, that is a fascinating little short film, in all on its own. You know, and and there's just so many 
kind of crazy, interesting things happening. Even the little, you know, uh, again, the, the, the oh, what, what, what's the word I'm trying to think of here? Just, just kind of the, the Randy humor, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, the penis and the countdown, the little upside down cartoon of the woman kind of, you know, uh, touching her breasts, uh, the washerwoman there. I just, <laughs> and and I guess I've I've heard it said that you know when Bergman was, um, uh, you know, putting this together, he figured those would be almost like little subliminal bits. They would go by so fast that nobody would pick on them. Well, I I'm sorry, but I can't watch it without noticing those two little uh, ribald. Uh, well, you, you can pause it little now. bits there. Well, yeah, yeah you you can. <laughs> uh, and but it, again, it's it, it is kind of uh, the the uh, you know the artist as a god at play. He's just he's just riffing on ideas, maybe a slightly inebriated with his own brilliance and the the audacity and the freedom that he has to just kind of throw these these uh startling images together uh you know but even you know again this this extremely meta you know the the the, the incandescent lamp lighting up the film running through its reels i mean very much reminding you at, not only at the beginning and at the end when there's a little reprise of all of this but even the the broken film in the middle he, he's he's sort of saying hey stop remember we're watching a movie here this is an artifice that i'm putting together uh to to to, to mess with your head a little little bit here you know as well as to give these these great uh artists my, my artistic partners the the these actors uh Sven Nikovic, the cinematographer uh you know the editing itself the the music i mean all the all the collaboration that goes on uh, and then there's the symbolism you know the the the, the christ symbolism you know, the, obviously the the hands nailed to, to a presumably a cross the sacrificial lamb uh you know these are powerful powerful images and and beautifully photographed and 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 stunningly composed and and juxtaposed against each other uh again is there a message is there a meaning that he's saying this is the key to it all uh he's just <laughs> confronting us with all of this and saying make of it what you will well i i think that if for us to really break it down would require like we could do a whole season on that uh, or a whole podcast like devoted to this because there's so much i think with each image i even even the spider god at least that's how i interpret the spider mm -hmm, crawling around mm -hmm. it, it's so internal to bergman's films and to things that you kind of i think have to know because you know bergman that i you know certainly didn't know anything about the first time around and it just feels like a, a, a boy a waterfall of images or, or or more like a fever dream you know which i blame bergman for some of my own fever dreams in my life <laughs> I, i've had nights where i've watched one of his films and, and then can't sleep or am half asleep while various feelings and images are, are, are burning around me and that's how this thing feels to me and none of them quite relating and what is this the little uh the what does the cartoon or the the silent film stuff have to do with the christ imagery um i i just don't know and and the film itself i mean it really does feel like the the kind of the composition of a consciousness that is contradictory and filled with with strong powerful images that do create a bit of personality while also um, f f 
being so contradictory that they're they're part of the complexity that it is to be a conscious human in this world with all that's going on around it. And that that's kind of my where I am with it. <laughs> I think it'll keep on developing as I watch it more and more. But that's that's me with the opening montage. Yeah, yeah I think... Well, go ahead, Scott. Okay, I was just going to say, I think that's a good place to be with it. I think that the idea of these kind of various forces intruding on the film early on is a good indication of what's to come. It kind of sets you uh, on the edge and reminds you of just everything that's going on in anyone's life, uh, inner or outer, that there's all these kind of forces vying for attention and uh, prominence. I do want to note, of course, that uh, Peter Cowie does a very excellent video essay spotlighting exactly this section of the film that's on the Blu-ray and I think on Filmstruck too that I really recommend people check out. Uh, but I think fundamentally the idea is just that it kind of sets you ill at ease right away in the film. And so I guess, on that Peter Cowie essay, it, again, brilliantly, I've watched that several times and always leave feeling well fed and still seeking answers. You know, oh, it's, for sure. It's, <laughs> it's provocative in that perfect way, just like the film. Yeah, I was just going to add that, uh, you know, it's a lot in the first 10 or 15 minutes of the film you know to plow through some exposition to establish who Alma and Elizabeth are and to establish kind of the conflict to come and this is an interesting way to set even those kind of mundane encounters on the edge and the way he kind of continues to provoke that in within those scenes I really love that shot of Elizabeth or Alma talking to the doctor and her hands are behind her back and the camera just pans down really quickly to show her hands kind of fidgeting to show that she is even in this kind of routine discussion uh, very ill at ease and one wonders how many of the opening images that we saw are kind of floating through her own head. Uh, David what were you going to say? Well, yeah, I think, yeah, it's just, it's again, it's just that juxtaposition of, of high art and low art and, and kind of, you know, popular even somewhat vulgar reference points i think you know probably those cartoons or things that bergman found funny as a kid or the book that the boy is reading when he's laying on that table it looks like it's a children's book of some sort i mean these may just be very much little nostalgic reminiscences of bergman's youth that he's just throwing in to to even lighten the tone a little bit. I mean, he had already probably been saddled with the reputation of, you know, the heavy brooding Swede and, and, uh, you know, just like the seventh seal has that kind of, you know, foreboding reputation. And yet it's, it's really chock full of, of humor. There's really not quite as much humor in the remainder of, of persona as there was in that earlier film. But I think Bergman's not so, you know, highfalutin that he can't just kind of have a little, fun at his own expense and just and just remind viewers that you know this this is this is the kind of that that whole scoop out of uh, the, the highs and lows of life uh and, and art and culture so yeah i i i think that's that's where the, the cartoons and the kind of you know slapsticky type of stuff goes in but then you, again you've got the you know the, the monk immolating himself and and the the shocking horror of this real thing that actually happened and was very much in people's consciousness uh, at the time as, as the, the war in Vietnam and the, the mass carnage that was just 
making life living hell for you know thousands if not millions of people in that part of the world uh you know he's not completely stepping outside of the the traumas of of his times you know, either it's it, it's certainly not a a film that's trying to be au courant in terms of you know heavy political statements uh but it's it's certainly aware of what's going on and it it breaks into this kind of hermetic you know uh psychological universe that he's constructed here yeah bergman actually was criticized a lot at the time for not addressing politics uh, and especially as the vietnam war wrapped up people felt like every artist needs to be making statements you know this is not a time to sit back and ponder the human condition and all that um and i wonder to what extent like those little intrusions or him kind of responding to that criticism uh, but also these were things that he was very much thinking about, even if he didn't directly make films about them. One can kind of trace in interviews going back to the 50s and 60s that the threat of nuclear annihilation and kind of the ongoing arms race and the outbreak of war. I think the outbreak of war in Vietnam did trouble him. And I think almost, or Elizabeth reaction, the, the television coverage of it is very much his own of just looking on in horror and not really being able to make sense of it and to some extent that does contribute to everyone's breakdown in this film that this uh idea of being of completely lacking control of one's destiny and i think it's really something he would dive into even more in the next couple of years with like shame especially as a really political mm-hmm. film without expressly being about a defined political conflict it's very much about that fear that some political conflict could completely transform the world and there's really nothing you could do to stop it and no way to overcome it, especially in the nuclear age when, you know, millions of lives can be wiped out with a single push of a button. That, that Yeah, yeah, the war could be literally hundreds of miles away and yet you're going to be just as damaged <laughs> when the radiation and, and right, other exactly. forces hit, yeah. Um, well, it seems that the the war and violence is is all these forces that continue to affect and, and direct a life. Um, I'm thinking of the, the the image from the silence where the young actor and I wish I'd remembered his name. I don't have it in front of me. The young boy, you know, he's sitting on the train and he puts his hand up to the window, and then we get that reverse shot and we see out the window. It's the tanks driving down the road, and we, you know, I I don't think it's entirely. Um, just a coincidence that it's a very similar shot when the young boy is reaching up to the screen and then we get the reverse shot and see the picture of the women on, on, on there. I, I, I think that this violence of the world around us and, you know, I think back to winter light with the, the fear of nuclear annihilation that is affecting those individuals even though it's not their life, it's still uh, it's still part of, and, and you guys have kind of said this, so I'm kind of retreading here, but it's still part of, of their experience of this world and of, of what is um, affecting and driving their decision-making and their, their fears and their, their, their perspective of this, the day-to-day that they go through. Um, and again, I apologize. I know you guys said some things that are very similar. I guess I'm just uh, processing it all still. Well, that's, nothing wrong, that's, wrong with restating. 
we're, we're that's what we're here for. Right? Um, <laughs> let's, let's let's maybe I I I don't want to steer it too much, but I I do want to kind of move on from the violence to Elizabeth's silence. Uh, to, a little play on words, I suppose. But you know what what's behind her her decision to go mute. Um, is you know one of the, the thoughts I had even even uh, tonight as I was kind of recapping it earlier as she's watching the monk burning himself alive, I hadn't sort of realized this or made this connection before. But is she seeing sort of a a very literal and and physical and and horrific reflection of what she's doing to herself? You know her her whole career her again her public persona is built upon expressing herself for the public and now she's she's withdrawn she's she's immolating herself maybe not in fire but in in this withdrawal this collapse into herself her this refusal to speak um i don't know do we want to play with this idea what is it that that got her to make this determined decision that she just was going to shut it down and uh, and get all these experts in to try to figure out what's going on with her uh, that that set up this whole situation, this relationship to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I as with anything else in the film, I don't think there's any one answer. But I think the conversation, well, not really a conversation because obviously Elizabeth's being silent. Uh, but the doctor's uh, thought toward Elizabeth of kind of musing the problem of the hopeless dream of being not seeming to be, but being, uh, and this sense that Elizabeth isn't sure, you know, entirely who she is apart from these defined roles. One of which is her profession as an actor, which, I mean, you, know, you can say whatever you want about the difficulty of that profession and how much we can gain from it. But fundamentally, if you're a stage actor, your job is to speak for a living. Uh, so in some ways the silence is the only way she can reclaim any sense of her entire self apart from anything else. You know, she could fundamentally go through the rest of her daily life, not needing to speak necessarily, but that the thing she's most known for is a requirement for her to speak. Uh, So I think in some ways she's cutting off that part of herself, the part which perhaps she feels the most at ease and the most fulfilled through. We obviously get the sense later on that, you know, motherhood isn't cutting it for her. Uh, being a spouse isn't completely fulfilling, but probably the arts is the one thing she has left. So if she cuts herself off from that or feels that she has to cut herself off from that or feels uh, inhibited from uh, expressing that side of herself, then that's really the ultimate departure from whatever life she's built up and whatever she might find from there can only be found by cutting off that part of herself. And seeing what's left after right, you've exactly. taken all that other stuff. What what um what am I? Yeah, who am I? Yeah, what is my persona? Trevor, what were you gonna say? Man, I, I feel so inept in talking about this film, even though these are things <laughs> I've thought about for a long time again. And I think it's because there's just you can always see the ways that it isn't what you're actually saying. <laughs> you know, the well, things that pull away from it. But after a few years of doing this podcast with you, I will say you often say that about many movies and then have some brilliantly profound thought that immediately follows. <laughs> well, so I say run with it. <laughs> okay. Well, so it feels to me like Elizabeth is is deliberately choosing this to gain some power. And I think she's conveyed and portrayed as a pow- more powerful 
person because of this. I mean, people are waiting on her. A doctor is, is waiting on her. A nurse now, Alma, is is waiting on her. And she herself has kind of created this vacuum where she can, um, you know, and, and, and also she's she then writes the letter, or does she? But something about studying Alma. And she's the one that we see later on in the film turning the camera to us. And so it really feels to me like there's a part of her that is saying, I'm now going to be silent and simply partake rather than be um, someone who is giving in, in all of this. And, and the images that stand out are, are, are when she seems to be haunting Elizabeth at night. You know, where that beautiful, beautiful ghostly image of her almost floating into Elizabeth's room um, in, in the evening there. Man, I, I cannot think of a better, um, a more beautiful image <laughs> in this beautiful black and white and silver film um, than that as she just kind of appears in the background. And it's almost like she has um, become a kind of a powerful haunting being when it should be the other way around. Alma should be there serving her or, or helping her and um, helping her to get better. But it, there is some kind of um, uh, feeding on Alma that, that's going on. And, and again, I know that's not particularly unique perspective, um, but the, you know, I, I do like that Alma um, does mean soul, and it also, if you go back all the way to Latin, it does mean uh, to feed and to nourish. And so it makes sense that she's the nurse and she's feeding and nourishing, but there's something a little bit more sinister about it when um, Elizabeth can be can be seen as someone who has chosen to create this silent vacuum that Elizabeth feels compelled to fill up with her own deepest and darkest secrets and guilts and um, and things that she's not proud of in her past. Um, well, and then she claws her her wrist open, and, mm-hmm. the, and Elizabeth swoops in and sucks her blood. I mean, so yeah. talk about feeding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can be a little bit yeah, literal yeah. there, but but her silence to me is a part of that. It's a part of her setting herself up. I, I don't see it as a sickness so much as um, a refusal, you know, uh, a, a stand that she is taking against others and that now she's going to um, to be in, in, in a stronger position there. Mm-hmm. Well, but assuming that she is the person who wrote that letter, that she is kind of viewing Alma as a specimen and, and in, as a, in, as in a sense um, refusing to participate uh, kind of reciprocal in a reciprocal relationship here, uh, despite Alma's, you know, desperate pleas for her just to say something, just to, to, to give her just a little bit of satisfaction. Uh, you know, Alma is really almost subjugating herself to Elizabeth, uh, but wanting to feel some sense of equity between the two of them, that they are friends. And Alma is recognizing now that she is being exploited. And I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, reluctant to say that Elizabeth is under the effect of a pathology. I mean, she's not in a healthy place. Uh, she's noble and she's got a principle and she's pursuing her truth, uh, you know, and, and that can be commended and, and respected. But 
you know, <laughs> she's doing damage not only to uh, Alma, her her very benevolent and and invested caretaker, but to the husband and son that she's abandoned. I mean, those are real people who are suffering a loss because Elizabeth is laying in her bed withholding something that really, I think, isn't asking a whole lot. She could retire from the stage, you know, she can find other things to do with her life. So uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to knock her down or, or certainly cast shame upon Elizabeth. I mean, she's, she's got an illness or she's got a condition, I guess, to maybe put it a little bit more neutrally that, that requires treatment. And there's perhaps there's some kind of trauma behind all of that. Uh, not something even from her childhood, but a, a real present trauma with her husband, with with her family situation that she needs to recover from. But uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily wanting to go as far as to endorse her course of action as like, you know, that that's that's a good way of taking care of your business. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put it out there like that. David, it, I think it's, it's an interesting thing with your interpretation of the film too. You've got this artistic, almost cannibalistic um, side that wants to feed off of your normal life and your guilts and your fears and your all of that kind of stuff. And and the people around you. I mean, go back to yeah. Through a Glass mm-hmm. Darkly, how the doctor or the, the writer was exploiting his daughter's mental illness for novel material, you know? Yeah. It's a theme that Bergman's explored before of kind of turning ordinary tragedies into the stuff of art. <laughs> and he knows he himself is guilty of that very offense. Yeah, he, yet, he's definitely but got the his art eyes open. Connects, right, but, but the art connects with people. The art gives people a, 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 a meaningful way of framing their own struggles and of empathizing and of identifying, uh, that's my story or that's the story of my loved one or, or these people that I'm seeking to understand. I mean, that that's the that's the positive power of art, but there is also that kind of uh, commercial exploitation, if you will. I, I've got some juicy material from a movie as I study the, the misery of these people near and dear to me, and it gives me the, the material that I'm going to work with. So, yeah, it, it's it, there's, a, there's a bit of an ethical paradox in all of that. Can, can I ask you both a question, too, that I don't know the answer to? Um, do you think by this time Bergman is done with the silence of God, or could could the silence of Elizabeth have something to do with his prior explorations of silence um, as it relates to God? There, there is some theological, you know, material going in there. Uh, the two women are are talking at one point, and I think Elizabeth kind of nods affirmatively and towards more of a an atheistic. There is no ultimate meaning to all of this and Alma says I don't agree with that you know again she takes the more conventional um kind of um, moralistic side of of these great eternal debates you know uh, she's more grounded she's a little bit more invested in morality for its own sake and traditional values and things of that sort and yet she's the one who's got the guilt and the the, the affliction in her conscience that she's had the abortion she she had this chance to give birth and she she wasn't ready for it and and you know that was the right decision for her at that time and yet there's still some pretty heavy regrets that are connected to that that decision that she made uh, the idea of Elizabeth's silence reflecting God's silence this is an interesting one the more I start to kind of tease it out because then it becomes 
this idea of we're almost constantly trying to get close to Elizabeth and who in this interpretation would take on the form of God and continually gets rejected and gets made to feel the object of study and the object of not a reciprocal closeness, but a kind of lording over to go back to the point we were making prior of Elizabeth silence, giving her a form of power uh, that almost constantly striving to get close to Elizabeth and never quite connecting and constantly trying to be seen as good. And she would she'll curse her out sometimes, but then come running back. Uh, but then ultimately, I guess the kind of upper hand Alma gains towards the end uh, would kind of stake out where Bergman was at the time religiously, where he's like, you know, I'm kind of done with the consideration of God. The And God does kind of proceed from uh, Bergman's films from here on. You know, I think to this point, there was always the idea that God was clearly out there in his films, even if his characters couldn't quite reach him. Uh, but from here on, there is a more atheistic bend, a, a more sense of the characters being left adrift and on their own, and Alma's departure towards the end of the film, like I said earlier, as much as it could just be about the relationships we feel with other people, it could also be about a relationship with God that Bergman was feeling of leaving it behind, but still being very psychologically marked. And the end montage, as much as it reflects the beginning, is a sign that, you know, whatever conclusions almost come to towards the end, she'll still be uh, deeply troubled by having gone through that process at all. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I talked about sort of the, the vampire bit there where Elizabeth is sucking the blood off of uh, Alma's wrist, but then Alma turns it around and gives Elizabeth a pretty harsh beat down, you yeah. know, and she's just like rearing, rearing back and letting her have it. So again, you don't see the bruises, the damage, and you wonder again, did that, physically happen or not but the 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 venting of the anger the the resentment just boiling over into this kind of you know unrelenting attack is is a pretty powerful moment towards the conclusion of the film i do uh want to mention uh gunner bernstein's role which we've mentioned a couple times but the idea that uh elizabeth's husband is blind is an interesting one uh not only because it gives kind of this kind of halfway convincing dramatic uh, excuse where Alma could be taking on Elizabeth's role where this is kind of the moment where she most aggressively tries to become Elizabeth. Uh, This is completely, well, not off topic, but it's a slight aside. Uh, I do love the moment early on where uh, Alma says, I think I could turn her into you if I really tried. And it's just kind of this tossed off remark early on in the film that kind of comes to define it later on. And here, when she encounters Elizabeth's husband, she really does, in many ways, become Elizabeth, at least for the husband. Of course, to whatever extent the husband's actually there and to what extent the husband could actually be blind in real life, it might just be the way that Alma imagines him or imagines this encounter might go or imagines a way this encounter could go for her to pass herself off as Elizabeth, the husband would need to not be able to see her. Um, but it's still just a, such a striking image, that reverse shot where we reveal a Gunnar Bernstrand sunglasses on, clearly looking off way in the distance, or rather not looking at all because uh, he can't see. But do you guys, can you guys make anything of this uh, decision? <laughs> to, to make him blind? Yeah. I th- I think it, for for me, it, a lot of what you just said, I think is is spot on. I mean, it, there is the the convenience of the plot 
of, of having him be able to mistake Alma for Elizabeth. But it's also a powerful talk about Elizabeth's decision to refuse to speak, because if he's blind, um, he's not deaf, but that would presumably be the way for them to communicate and she has shut it completely off. The only thing they have left would be a little bit of physical touch because there's there's nothing for him to see in her, but now there's nothing for him to hear either. I mean, she, you know, we can, we can make some assumptions as to why she might do that to her spouse, but um, I, I think that, that that makes her completely gone for him other than, you know, perhaps some physical contact. Yeah, she's become invisible to, to a yeah. man who cannot see. She's become almost like a non-entity now. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and how about how about the, the the merging of the faces? I mean, it's a it's an optical effect, and it is kind of really playing with you know the visual similarities between these two you know beautiful Swedish blonde-haired women, <laughs> and and the way that their faces. I mean, they're certainly not identical twins. You 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 will always be able to tell who's Leave and who's Bibi, but. The, the you know the the merging of their faces the fusing of this identity for these these visual moments um that's another kind of fulfillment of this tossed off prophecy if you will i could become you you know and uh i'm sure bergman with the great student and and uh master of of photog- uh visually uh, capturing faces studied those two faces quite <laughs> quite at length and and decided to both have some fun with it but also to make a, a poignant statement exactly what it means again there's there's all sorts of fruit for you know uh, putting your shingle out there and saying here's my <laughs> interpretation of it all but it's a very stunning and and unforgettable moment yeah, I really don't have a, a read on it other than it feels like the natural culmination of everything the film's been considering to that point. It just feels like you have to have this kind of, and the score really reflects this beautifully, this really kind of operatic boom as the faces merge. Uh, it just feels like the inevitable result of this dramatic conflict. I like the way you put that, Scott. It, it is like the culmination, I think, of almost any interpretation you might have of the film um, this seems to be the natural end for it. You know, if it's David, uh, David's uh, uh, theory of it being two sides, you know, kind of warring to, to create art or to in, and to have a life, or, you know, other theories of them being different parts of the same personality that, are, that others have, or them being different women, but just, you know, with this kind of a psychological... Um, union that they they go they finally achieve there at the end after a lot of uh, warfare psychological warfare and such um, it really does seem to fit with so many of these things uh, we've talked a lot about uh, kind of moments or rather the larger effect of the film that it leaves this mark on us that we can't quite shake and we can't quite explain I was wondering if you guys have individual moments that tend to stand out for you that kind of summarize that in a way and summarize the feeling the film leaves for you uh i know for myself the scene of alma reading the letter uh not only the for its importance in the dramatic conflict i think that uh feeling of sensing you're close to somebody but suddenly feeling betrayed by them is uh, so universal and so well expressed in that moment the idea of her kind of laughing of elizabeth laughing kind of almost back back and 
them and her not being able to see whatever was going on with Elizabeth, uh, but also just the way it's expressed, the way that the pages literally change shape. You know, we see the letter kind of written out in full, but then the close-ups of them are these isolated paragraphs that nobody would ever write a letter in this form, but it's really striking to see. And there's this kind of drip, drip in the soundtrack. And then it kind of concludes with Alma standing over this pool of water, her reflection kind of uh, caught in the waves and not quite coming into focus and her standing utterly still on the top half of the frame. Uh, It's just such a striking, dramatic and aesthetic moment that it really summarizes so much of what the film affects for me, not only emotionally, but aesthetically. Uh, Yeah, so I was wondering if you guys have other moments like that that tend to stick with you like that. We've 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 touched on a few of them, um, some of these iconic moments. But one that is is somewhat small um, is when Elizabeth ch- turns. You know, they're out there on the beach, and she turns the camera toward us or toward the other camera. It's something that I can't quite explain, but it it always strikes me as invading my room or wherever I am watching it. All of the sudden, this is deeply personal to me, and I'm no longer just watching someone else's film. It's like he's turned it on me, and it really does collide um, what my experiences and the thoughts that I'm having, which are invariably as I'm watching this, you know, my thoughts are running a 100 miles an hour, and it feels very deep and personal. And then to have it all of a sudden turned onto me, it's always a very powerful moment in the film that otherwise I can't quite explain. You know, I don't know why Bergman chooses to have uh, Lee Volman turn that camera toward the the other camera. I mean, another moment where the it breaks the fourth wall and kind of shows this is a film, um, but it, it does feel more significant than that to me. Yeah, let's see. There, there are several moments. I mean, that that incredible tracking shot along the beach where Alma's chasing after Elizabeth and Elizabeth just has this you know kind of straightforward stride yeah and, I love and, that and Alma is just going through this these convulsions of, of emotions and feelings and and um, you know it, it's it's just like there's just so much packed into that little uh, monologue as she's trying every angle to try to reconcile with this so so desperately with this woman that she's offended and it's like she's she's angry at herself and she's just trying to find a way in um the um also just the that that kind of that sequence earlier in the film where where the two women are really just forging that bond and and even even their wardrobes you know they're uh, at one point they're they're all dressed in black uh, out there and then the night time comes and they're in their white nightgowns and just uh, uh, elizabeth's positioning on the bed as she's listening and kind of just kind of silently taking in this this account this story that uh that Alma's telling her and and just the the look on her face as she's kind of you know uh, vicariously experiencing this uh very rarely told account you know um boy there, there's there's just a ton of them I mean you know you can you can capture them as gifs or, or as screensavers or just you know uh artistically framed images you know and just even even the rights of, of, of female friendship you know the sorting shells and reading in the sun and uh the, 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 you know it it's just loaded i you know there's there's a lot of different moments there that um just come to mind as i'm just kind of thinking back 
Yeah, I also wanted to mention with the tracking shot along the beach, how for as kind of formally inventive and daring as the film is, Bergman still has a very clean sense of kind of classical filmmaking. You know, that tracking shot is the right shot to follow two people along the beach, and then it cuts Mm -hmm. immediately when uh, Liv Owen pauses and turns around, and it goes back to the same tracking setup when she starts walking again. You know, it's in many ways, as much as the film is... Uh, really bold and inventive it still knows when to keep it fundamental and to keep the focus on the actors you know I, I think you see so many films many of which have taken uh, inspiration from persona that kind of go out of their way to make a point of their formal inventiveness I think even as much as I like Robert Altman's Three Women it has a bit of this problem uh, Alex Ross Perry's Queen of Earth definitely has this problem um, but you get back to this era when Bergman was still caught between the very modernist movements of um, then modern art and the classical filmmaking he grew up with, you know, he, he knew when to push things and he knew when to kind of keep things reined in. And I think that kind of tug and push and pull keeps the film active and engaging in a way that many of its imitators haven't quite matched. Yeah. It's the, it's the mastery of technique. It's, it's Picasso saying, you know what, I can paint a very, you know, compelling, realistic portrait if I wanted to, or it's, or it's, it's the Beatles or whoever saying, I, I really know how to play my instrument. I'm not just being all avant-garde and weird. I'm, I'm, you know, I can, I can be conventional and do the traditional classical things at, at the highest level, even while I'm shattering, you know, boundaries and taboos and, and experimental, uh, formal, exp- you know, uh, innovations here. So, yeah, he, he, he covers all the bases. Yeah, no, like James Joyce, I, I've written a conventional mm-hmm. novel. Now I'm going to give you Ulysses, and then I'm going to maybe take it too far with <laughs> Finnegan's Wake. You know, just, <laughs> just leave the rest of you in the dust there, right? Exactly. And yeah. it is possible that Bergman has uh, will eventually go too far with these kind of ideas in the films to come, <laughs> depending on who you talk to. Um, well, I've kind of gotten through most of the, the notes I want to, and I know we're running long both for our own and for our listeners' sake. Uh, but are there, are there any final thoughts, anything? I'm sure there's plenty we didn't get to, but anything you really, really need to get to before we wrap up? I, hey. I have one more I want to touch on, but I want to throw to you guys first. I say let's just come back in a couple more years and record a whole new yeah, episode right. <laughs> with yeah, yeah. a whole bunch of different angles on it. No, I, I, I just feel like this is this is one of those you know, pinnacle films, not just for Bergman's career, but uh, and maybe not even just for the '60s, but it's, it's definitely a landmark. Um, you know, there are some of his other films that maybe, you know, touch my story at a little bit more fundamental level that I I might find myself more emotionally moved by, but. This is just an astonishing masterpiece, and and uh, I don't particularly feel the need to rank it numerically. It's just it's an incredible film, and and one that uh you know invites you know uh, and and rewards you know multiple rewatches, even if it's just portions, even if it's just let's look at that scene again and and again just marvel at at the efficiency and economy and and brilliance of it all. I think I. Um, would just ag- agree with you, David, and you said it very nicely. My own thoughts on the film. It It's not my favorite movie. It's not my favorite Bergman, but that's more of a personal take because it doesn't necessarily always speak to me as much as, you know, Winter Light does or, or something, you know, th- Through Her Glass Darkly has a little bit more drama that really just punches me in the gut. And that's okay, be- but it still is... 
an undeniable masterwork of world art and it, it it just kind of shows that this this personal ranking of things doesn't quite work because you know is, is it the one that speaks to me the most maybe not but it is certainly one that um that pulls at me and tugs at me and provokes me and and just makes me marvel at the skill and the 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 personal um display that Bergman uh puts out there for us it it just is exceptional and I'm, I'm very glad we were able to to get together and, and talk about it finally because you know we, we have been wanting to talk about this film for months and it's never been one where I've thought I don't really want to get together with my two friends and talk about it I'll let them go <laughs> forward I mean I may have volunteered that at times just to not hold you guys up but I desperately wanted to talk about this film with both of you because it's it's so fascinating and there's you know even in our conversation tonight it's felt personal you know maybe we haven't revealed our souls but it it still has touched on things that that just feel important and deep and um and lasting to the point where you know i we could come back in a couple of years and i think i would um would remember tonight you know being able to uh to get some of these thoughts out there and um, and have this enjoyable conversation with you. Yeah, well, thank you guys both so much for carving out the time. The the one thought I did want to get to, and it's really just uh, me uh, throwing out a quick mention, although you guys are welcome to build on it if you would like as we kind of wrap things up, but I, I did want to throw some love to B.B. Anderson's performance in general. I think she's one of Bergman's less appreciated stars, and I, I, I insist, and uh, listeners might call bullshit on this, but uh, I insist that even apart from the fact that I find her to be maybe the most beautiful woman who ever lived, uh, I think she's an, <laughs> an incredible actress. Uh, I think, unfortunately, min- most of her best work in The Devil's Eye and Passion of Anna and The Touch and this for a long time weren't uh, in as wide of circulation. Uh, and so I think she's kind of been somewhat undervalued as one of Bergman's stock players, but uh, I think she really... Yeah, she was like... like- the young cutie right exactly the seventh seal you know uh, which was a, a fine performance but yeah i i do agree i i think the the maturity and the emotional range and uh you know lee volman certainly i guess if you had to say had an easier part although the constraint of not being able to talk and do so much speaking with your eyes and your body is is quite a challenge but yeah the, to me bb anderson is is you know the 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 featured the star attraction lee volman had incredible films ahead of her and this was an incredible performance as well but yeah i'll definitely uh you know echo the praise of bb anderson and and i i am i am glad that this film has is gotten the you know the criterion treatment obviously one of the, the most visually gorgeous and tastefully uh composed of the old uh dual format boxes uh it's it's a real lovely item on the shelf whether you're a completionist or you just want to have that one even with the upcoming bergman box uh it's it's worth just having this additional on its own yeah i am still going to hang out of this mm-hmm. even after getting the box set i'm sure david for your uncompletionist reasons you will likely do the same but uh i'll be selling Goes off without saying there <laughs> yeah i'll be settling off yeah. quite a few bergman discs but this one's staying for sure Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me jump in on the B.B. Anderson love, because I think of all the characters, she she puts on a, an amazing show uh, of range. I mean, I do think even in this film, you know, as great as she is, it's still Lee Volman who, who, who 
kind of is brought up the most because it's her debut with Bergman. We know what's going on behind the scenes. We know where this is leading. I mean, the disc comes with a movie or with a documentary called Leave and and Ingmar. Um, you know, it, it seems like it's her, um, you know, triumphal entrance onto the stage. And in a way it is, but you're absolutely right. It, it, it shouldn't be something that detracts from B.B. Anderson, who is really putting on an exceptional performance as Alma um, and all of her struggles, um, her delights, her her fears, her, her quiet nights where she's the only one talking because she can't hold it in. And you just really feel that power and, and that compulsion that she has there. And, and you feel her, her terror and her innocent, you know, kind of her innocent vulnerability at times, um, that it isn't, isn't matched, um, in, by, uh, by Ullman in, in the, in this film as, as great as Ullman is. Um, it's just, it's a different, it's a different role and BB pulls it off wonderfully. Yeah. That very much mixes kind of the sweetness and kind of the, bitterness that she feels is so well suited to the character and so much an expression of Anderson's talents that it's no wonder that uh, Bergman wrote the role for her. Um, but yeah, I, I think you guys otherwise summed up the film in as much as it can be summed up so well. Uh, I'll also include in the show notes for this, uh, my own personal kind of rankings as much as you guys, uh, rightly diminish the importance of uh, ranking anything. <laughs> I, I do hold this, uh, in the upper echelons of Bergman's work. I, yeah, I have these like kind of loose categories of how I see Bergman's work kind of fitting into his filmography and film in general. And this, along with Wild Strawberries and Fanny Alexander, fall under the uppermost category of transcendent immortal works at the height of mankind's artistic accomplishments. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. Kinda... And, yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. no. As far as tears go, yeah, this is absolute top shelf Bergman. Yeah. I don't think that's yeah. disputable at all. And I think you just said that we need to do a Fanny and Alexander episode um, hey, around. Hey, nothing wrong around. with that. Christmas time is, is my thought. New Year's Christmas. <laughs> well, we'll I see. I mean, we got it, might not be, year it might not be this and all year. That stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some Christmas. Some Christmas time. It is. I do watch that first episode almost every Christmas. It's such a lovely little film unto itself. Yeah. Um, but that's for another time. Uh, David, Trevor, thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad we pressed ahead and insisted on doing it with the three of us, even as conflicts came up with one or the other in previously scheduled dates. But I think it really paid off to wait um listeners will be hopefully doing one more episode i know david has a pick that uh is on the horizon that hopefully we can get to and that we really want to get to some more bergman before the end of the year so hopefully the scheduling will work out a little bit better in the next couple months and we'll be able to pack it all in uh but until then uh you know keep your dreams lively but uh don't go off the deep end too much right uh and goodbye